Hello and welcome, I'm Alexander. And I'm Simon. And I'm Tony. We are still very much knee-deep in tech, and this is episode 119, recorded on the 14th of May, 2020. It's the silly season. Yeah, but before we even get started, I have a question. Simon, what the hell did you do? What the <laughs> hell did you do? I that, found, that, is a, really? that is a very good question. In general, Simon, what the hell did you do? Damn it, Simon. <laughs> I think you should explain why you're asking these uh, questions. What's happened? Well, I should have asked last time, but I missed that episode. So what the hell? iPhone? I'm gone for one episode and you go iPhone? (laughs) Really? (laughs) Yeah. So uh, I've been using my new iPhone SE Gen 2 for about a week now. Less than a week, six days or so. the reason for me to buy uh, a new phone in general were to be able to separate my private life from my work life. And how did that work out for you? I think you need much more than a phone to do that. No, no, no. It, it's actually turned out very well. And and mind you, community is a part of my private life as well. So I have Twitter, I have LinkedIn, um, things like that. But I don't have my corporate email. I don't have my corporate Teams I don't have my corporate accounts in my authenticator app, things like that. And it's actually turned out to be as good as I hoped. So it's actually working. Uh, But I could have achieved that with any phone. But I chose the iPhone SE because of the first reason, the main reason, were that I uh, wanted a newer iPhone to to, to be able to show off uh, in-tune management of a new iOS device. So it, it's actually for work purposes. Thank you. I was just about to ask that. But it's in, in, in my tenant. So that's the, the difference. My work phone is managed by TrueSec and my personal phone is managed by BinderTech. But you still use that phone for work. I show that I take care of my personal data. So the short answer is yes. Okay, you you can go on. So I wanted an iOS device, and this is the cheapest one you can get. Uh, Mind you, I have the 128 gigabyte version of it. But I must say, I'm extremely pleased. I really enjoy it. Because it's, it's as quick as my wife's iPhone 11. And I actually, and this hurts to say... I like a smaller phone. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I have a Note 10 Plus. It's hilarious how small this one is compared to my work phone. And I found that I really enjoy the form factor. It's funny you should say that, because my wife, who is uh, almost comically disinterested in technology, um, I, I think she loathes technology. Yep. She has a very, very old uh, Sony phone. I think it's like five or six generations out of date. Yeah, it's even Sony Ericsson, right? It's not that old. Uh, it's not still, that old. It's okay. still an Android. And it is tiny compared to the iPhone uh, 11 that I have. Yeah. And I agree. It is a perfect size. I don't yeah. understand why I need to lug around what amounts to pretty much a, a, a paperback novel. Yeah. It's stupid. So so basically, my review of the iPhone SE Gen 2, which is basically an iPhone 11 
in the chassis of an iPhone 8 is that this is this has to be the best iPhone ever. And I'm really enjoying it. Considering that you don't know crap about iPhones, <laughs> I'm not going <laughs> to add very much weight to that. But having said that, I think I might agree. Yeah, because it's the, the best of both worlds. And I got a comment from, from um, one of my colleagues that really a physical home button, but that's one of the things I really like with it. I, I do have something I can touch and feel and it makes so much more sense than not having any home buttons at all that are physical. So I I probably, if I needed to choose between an Android and an iPhone, I would probably still choose an Android. But if you ask me in a few weeks, and you will quote me on this, I may actually reconsider. I'm really sorry to tell you that. But I think the... The best of both worlds for for the iPhone SE has made me realize that there could be other options. And if I could have the option to go Windows Phone, I would do that. So the title of this episode is is Simon's Lament. (laughs) If if that's your preference. Yeah. Um, I'm going to keep going with the slightly frivolous news for just a second, because I think this is important. Formula One, you know what it is. Yeah. Overly paid gentlemen driving insanely fast cars round, round, round. That, that's that's me, basically. No, in absolutely no way is it you. <laughs> but yeah, keep going. So Sebastian Vettel, he will be leaving Ferrari. That's a pretty oh, big thing. That's a big thing. It is a huge thing. Nobody knows where he's going. Oh, and Carlos Sainz is leaving McLaren to take his seat at Ferrari. Daniel Ricciardo is moving from Renault to McLaren. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Because Renault is sponsored by Microsoft. Oh. They are. They are. Surface and Dynamics. I mean, as as much as I like, I love Formula One, but still, how is this related? What? I hope you have some some kind of, (laughs) if this is a huge segue. No, I just think it's cool. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I, wait, wait, wait. And, and now we need to talk about Formula One. I need to follow it better because I all, I'm always one season behind because I watch Netflix. But oh my, that was interesting. It's called the silly season for a reason because this year a lot of drivers were, their, their uh, contracts were up. But I don't think anybody would have, have thought that this was going to happen. And again, nobody knows where Sebastian Vettel is going. But can't, can it be anything other than Red Bull and Mercedes? He is not going to go to Red Bull because Red Bull does not want to put a, a star driver next to Verstappen. Yeah, that's that's very true. And, well, the, on, the only person that he Bottas. might... Yeah, but I doubt it. Yeah. Anyways, that was it from, from the, the frivolous part of stuff. I did... Um, there was a conference last week. It was called... Or last week. This week. This wow. week. Time flies. Group by. Group by was started by Brendozar a couple of years back, and it was started as one of the first online, really online uh, conferences. And it's kind of cool because you submit your proposal and then it goes into a pool and people can vote for your session. I was very fortunate to be chosen as a speaker last year. I didn't get in this year. It is an amazing uh, conference. I really, really love it. And this year it was actually 
not only two days, one for Americas and one for Europe. It was also two tracks. So it oh. was a lot of new stuff. I had the absolute honor to do moderating for two slots. Have you done any moderating, Simon, for, for this kind of stuff? It depends on, on what it implies. But yeah, I'm, I'm moderating many of our webinars. And what's your take on moderating? Is it easy or is it difficult? I think it depends on what you do. So when I do, uh, I've done it from two different angles uh, for our webinars. One have been really only replying to questions in the chat and ensuring that everyone knows what's happening and so on. Uh, but now the last times I've also been um, being like the presenter and introduced the actual speakers and then aggregated questions and ask them out verbally and so on and but at that point i've also been in charge of producing so changing cameras changing views starting media things like that and and, and it's it's hard it is it is very hard and i mean if suddenly you you're put into a new situation because as a speaker you're pretty well established you have your your slides you know what you're going to say and you know the timing here you can be thrown between questions and suddenly you need to interrupt the speaker with a question or you need to segue or in as in my case twice uh, ed elliott's feed cut out yeah so the first time the funny thing is he, he's uh, talking about uh, testing unit yep. testing and integration testing so we we of course had to ask him did you do unit testing on your internet <laughs> connection yeah he didn't he didn't have a really good answer. And the second time we asked him, are you trying to um, reenact Brexit? Because he's from the UK. Uh, he didn't, he, he claimed he didn't, but you never know. So it's, it's, it's a different experience, but I think it's a lot of fun. And I highly recommend anyone who is interested in, in going into speaking, look into doing moderation because it's, it's not the same thing, but it's pretty interesting as well. Absolutely. All right. Um, I'm just going to hog the session just a bit more. Do you guys know what Data Lake is? Yep. I, if, or w w I at least know what you have told me it is. It's, yeah. it's basically yeah. an, 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 a bottomless pit where you can pour data in, right? Yeah. So yeah, exactly that. <laughs> in Power BI, <laughs> we have something called a Power BI data flow. A data flow is wrangling of data like we start with some kind of source we go through a few steps such as adding um, a column or, or splitting columns or changing data types all that those steps are done in power query and if we want to combine all these and, and do a consistent number of steps we can do that into a data flow and a data flow in turn is stored inside a data lake underneath power bi that means that I don't have to touch it. It's going to be managed automatically by Power BI. But if I want to, I can attach my own data lake to it. And suddenly I can access the data flows from a third party just by reading the underlying structure. This is all fine and well. This we've been able to do for a little over a year. But what is coming very, very, very soon, and this uh, I saw through um, a tweet earlier today from Daniel Masluk in, in Australia, is that you are now very soon able to disconnect your data lake. 
because one of the, the worst things you could do was to connect your own data lake, do some testing, and then realize that, oops, you're screwed because you cannot disconnect it again. But now you're soon able to do that. And that is a huge step forward for testing, for demos, or any any stuff like that. And that's that's a big thing. So if, if I understood you correctly now, you create, where do you create the data flow in Power BI? You do it inside the Power BI service. So powerbi.com, this is where you create your data flow. Yeah. So so you can create your flows in Power, the Power BI service. Mm-hmm. And then you basically apply those flows to a data lake. Sort of, kind of. It's, it's, a, it's a complex concept because anything you do in Power BI, as soon as you put it into the service, you upload the data. In most yep. cases, we're not talking about direct connect. We're, we're talking about the cached one. When yep. you create a data flow, the data flow consists of two parts. One is the, the steps, yep. i.e. the code that's going to be in Power Query, but you also store the data. And you store both the data and the steps taken to get the data to that state inside of a data lake. Did you follow? Yeah, but so now th- does the data flow belong to the data lake or to Power BI? That is also a very good question. And the short answer is it belongs to Power BI. It's created yeah. in Power BI, but technically it is just a JSON a couple of JSON files and CSV files. Because as, as, and correct me now if I'm wrong, you can create a data lake and you then fill that with data, which, and that data can come from any source. Mm-hmm. And up until now, you could then take that data lake and connect it to Power BI and therefore applying your data flows to that data lake. Is that correct so far? Sort of. Sort of. Yeah, it, it's probably way more complicated. Now, but, it depends but, on where you're going next. Yeah. And 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 up until now, you weren't able to then remove the data lake from Power BI and, and basically connect the same data flow to another lake. You are completely missing the point. <laughs> But it, it's a good point. So I'll, I'll try again. A data flow is a set of steps that we need to take in order to make data from, from state A to state B. Yeah. Uh, so so th- you're good with that, that part. Yeah, I'm good with that. As soon as I create a data flow, that gets saved in yeah. a data lake. A data lake. If I have not specifically said that I wanted to save to my own data lake, it's going to be saved to a data lake underneath Power BI that is not managed by me. Thus, I cannot access it as a file system. But I can attach my own data lake as a file system and store the data flows in there. But, and then you can't disconnect that data lake. I couldn't do that, no. No, which meant that you would, if you then, so previously, if you wanted to test something, you basically, fill the data lake with data, connected it, tested something, and if it didn't work, you had to create a new data lake. It's actually worse than that because creating a data lake is easy, but you need to tear down your Power BI tenant. Oh, 
because you cannot change the data lake storage. And that means that either you keep your own data lake for yeah. the Power BI um, data flow storage, yeah. or you don't use Power BI data flows because you cannot oh. disconnect it and go back to the managed data data lake. Now you can, or very soon you can. Yeah, that, that was probably the way I was thinking, but I didn't communicate it in a good way. But then I understand how huge this is. Because I would assume that a lot of organizations have by mistake misconfigured their data lake and therefore had to scrap their service. No, I, <laughs> I, I highly doubt that, that anyone has done that by mistake because you need to jump through quite a few hoops. But it, is, it has been a blocker for a lot of companies who did not want to go the own data lake route because there was no getting out of it. Ah. Right. So so the new feature, which we are highlighting here, is what? The new feature is the ability to disconnect your own data lake and go back to the managed data lake that you can't access from anywhere else than through the Power BI data flows. Okay, right. <clears throat> Thank you. That now we know more about data lake, data flows, and Power BI. Well, I do. I am not sure you do, but... <laughs> <laughs> No, but it, it's a good point. And this this would have been cleared up in about 50 seconds on a whiteboard. And it drives home just how difficult it is to explain concepts using only your voice. Yep. But it's good fun. All right. I think I've done enough damage for today. I would like to know more about uh, the uh, Windows Virtual Desktop Spring Update and uh, Tony's migration. Oh, yeah. Uh, that's been... Uh a lot of fun, I suppose. Uh, so uh, pretty much all of last week was dedicated uh, for uh, the spring update, uh, Windows Virtual Desktop. So I had to make sure that everything uh, went, let's say, seamlessly, pretty much. So I had a few different session session hosts uh, so uh, I did them one at, one at a time. Uh, mostly everything went fine. So upgrading from you know the what was it the fall update to the spring update. And I, and I think we we before you continue, sorry to interrupt, but uh, from from an outside point of view, uh, the obvious things with the spring update is that you now have a graphical user interface in the Azure portal. But underneath that, the reason why it haven't been in the Azure portal previously is that it wasn't built on the, the Azure framework as all the other services. So not only have we now got a new interface, we also have new commandlets and a new architecture for Windows Virtual Desktop. Therefore, you have to migrate your, as, as we say, full update environments to the spring update to modernize them and that's what you have been doing for the last week yeah so what you're getting at is pretty much the arm architecture right so uh, so right now you can actually utilize the uh, pretty much everything in azure so being you know azure groups users uh, all the other arm based stuff so that also applies to uh, Windows Virtual Desktop as of uh, the update, uh, spring update. Yep. So that's a big difference. So now you can actually, uh, you know, for example, 
assign you know a group that is allowed to connect to the your Windows virtual yeah. desktop, <laughs> which was actually not possible before. But yeah, we, we talked about that previously. Yeah, and uh, of course I made you know some PowerShell stuff and uh, things like that uh, previously to just try to solve that issue. But yeah, so yeah, it's ARM based now with the Spring update. And yeah. uh, like I said, uh, things went uh, very well. Uh, as of right now, uh, I think most of our users are very happy, despite having to actually uh, change their URLs uh, to connect, you know, to a, to a, to a new URL uh, for the ARM-based yeah. uh, connection. Um, I think I had a few Mac Mac users that had issues as well. Uh, most of the Windows guys never even noticed because it yeah. just worked. But I think I had a few like Mac users that had to, you know, manually change the uh, connection URL. Yeah. But other than that, no issues at all. And uh, yeah, the ARM version is, of course, working a lot better and a lot easier to manage. So that's a Pretty much about it regards to Windows Virtual Desktop. Is this uh, the same kind of change that we saw between classic VMs in Azure and ARM VMs in Azure? Oh yeah, ex exactly the same thing. So what you're doing is pretty much you're not ex you're not changing the VM itself. You're just changing the management uh, pane uh, or the the administration pane uh, side of things. So you're you're moving the management from classic to ARM. Ah, I see. But the resources themselves were built on ARM. Yeah. The, so the resources themselves are still the same. So yeah, I've done that previously as well, uh, exactly as you the, were discussing here. So uh, moving from uh, the Azure Classic to uh, ARM, uh, the management pane. So that's exactly the same thing. Cool. And on that note, we also now last week got um, support for Microsoft Defender ATP for Windows 10 Enterprise Multisession, uh, both for persistent and non-persistent uh, VMs, which is cool. Um, and to continue that, I, I, this week I've, among other things, done a course for Micro Warehouse in, in Dublin. I'm very sorry that I couldn't go there. I've been looking forward to that journey for quite a while, but we did it over Teams instead. It turned out to be the most popular course that Micro Warehouse ever have done. And the course was about Microsoft 365 security. So under two in, uh, in two days, we went through all the ATPs, Sentinel, Microsoft Cloud App Security, uh, as well as identity protection and some Intune, of course. Uh, and it turned out to be a very, very fun course, and I've learned a lot. And it's very cool what you can do with uh, Defender ATP. It's it's much, much more than just your plain old um, threat protection tool. And especially if you integrate with Cloud App Security, which is a very underestimated product, you are in for a real treat as an IT administrator. So we'll, we'll probably talk more about that, but... Um, it was a great, fun course to deliver, and uh, I'm looking forward to doing more courses with Micro Warehouse as well. 
moving forward. So did you do these courses as live events or did you do them as as normal Teams meetings? Teams meetings, uh, because I... Like since the the initial thought were if I would have been in Dublin, we should have done a bunch of labs and which we couldn't do now. So I was hoping for a lot of interaction during the course. It turned out not to be that much, but we did talked about this before the recording that in general, we get less feedback doing online events than we do if you do an in-person training. So I actually did it as a Teams meeting uh, and then combined both my... Um, Open Broadcast Studio setup. So I did a lot of all my PowerPoints I did as a video stream rather than sharing the PowerPoint. But all the demos was done using the the share uh, screen experience in, in Teams. All right. Quite interesting. What's next? I'm stuck at the uh, Formula1.com page now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can actually add something. Um, since... I remember a few years back, Alexander actually uh, tipped me off for a, you know, a ad block thingy, thingamajingy, uh, called the Pi Hole. So that actually got a new update uh, this week, which is called version 5. So I've been using the version 4 for a very long time. So version 5 just got released this week, and I have updated uh, the application itself, and also the uh, CentOS 7, which I was using prior to, to uh, this, uh, to the la- latest version. And uh, all I can report is working very well. So I, I, I remember that we have talked about this, but for the ones, and for me, who isn't fully aware on how this setup works, what does it really do? How do you get going with it? Well, in my specific case, I just have a Hyper-V uh, virtual machine running CentOS, and uh, on that platform I have installed the PyHole uh, uh, distribution, or whatever it's called. I don't even know. So, li- Linux stuff. Uh, and then I have pointed my uh, domain controllers to use that as a DNS forwarder. So ah. everything goes through that up to the internet, and that filters out uh, most of the ads uh, on the net. And it, it's called the Pi Hole because it was originally designed to run on a Raspberry Pi. And yep. I have it running on a Raspberry Pi. And as Tony said, everything I did in my router was I, I had the router as the DHCP server. So instead of, of going for the router as the DNS, it, it gives the, the IP address of the Pi hole as a DNS forwarder and DNS uh, whitelisting. It works beautifully. The number of ads that it serves is just, it's nothing. They're gone. And since you're not running, or you, you can always do, do um, ad block as well, but if you're not doing ad block inside of your, your uh, edge uh, application, well, there's no ad block to be detected. The ads are still going to be gone, but there is no ad block. So that is also one one huge benefit of using PyHole. And and Tony, I'm I'm curious, ergonomics, keyboard, chair, table. Could you could you elaborate on what your your note is about? 
Oh, the show notes. Oh, right. Uh, so uh, the thing I was thinking about was uh, since we are all, you know, stuck at home as per usual. I'm very um, happy that you said stuck at home, not working at home. <laughs> or stuck at home or safe at home, as ah, one might ah. say instead. So, uh, yeah, uh, people have been arguing about, you know, uh, what is your keyboard experience like? What is your mouse experience like? Uh, I've heard people talking about their chairs. I've heard people talking about, you know, the, the table they are working on and stuff like that. So, uh, would you actually like to have, you know, say the ergonomic specific keyboards, uh, you know, the Microsoft, you know, twisted ones Mm -hmm. or like Logitech's like the twisted ones. I do. And also, also when it comes to, uh, you know, mice, uh, would you like to have the, you know, the, the the thumb roll, the, the little uh, ball thing, the trackball. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I mean, I I I've used that for twenty years ago, and I I loved it. I killed people with it, with <laughs> FPS games and stuff like that. Oh, I don't get me even started. But yeah, uh, but you know, uh, so things like that. Uh, what do you think is important in those kind of situations? So would you order, you know? Specific ergonomic keyboards, mice, tables, chairs, things like that, just for working from home. I I could go first for that one, and I think the the up until the la- very last uh, statement in your sentence, that's that's key. Would I use that for home? Well, before I was forced to work from home, I spent a lot of time at my computer at home, and I think it's the same for you too, and that means that. It's a no-brainer for me to have tools that I I feel work for me. And I found out very early that I really enjoy an ergonomic ergonomic keyboard, the split keyboard thing. I'm I'm not completely split. I'm now using a Logitech K860, I think it's called. It's brand new, just came out this uh, early this year. I used to run the Microsoft Sculpt and I I really liked it until it died. Uh, which I did not like, but um, so so that's when it comes to a keyboard. That is the way to go for me. I've tried a trackball. I have a trackball as a secondary that I can switch over to my left hand, but otherwise I'm using a normal mouse. But it it all comes down to preference, and for me, it's not so much working from home as in working my ass off at home. Period. Make sense? Yeah. And and to me, so I've. I've spent or spent a lot of time. I've what I do for ergonomics is that I have a a table that I can lower and and rise up, of course, so as a, a table that I can be standing up and working with and sitting down working with. That also means that I can use my office chair or my Pilates ball, which I used quite a lot actually. That that's really comfortable and and makes me much more active when sitting down. I also have a balance plate. Uh, that I use from time to time. But the challenge with that one is that since my room um, isn't really built for <laughs> working from home, I, and this is the first time ever I have had this problem, I get too tall for the room <laughs> if I'm on the balance plate because I can't put my table high enough <laughs> to have an ergonomic view on my screens. 
So that's a, a challenge. Uh, I also try to like wear shoes indoors when standing up and working, just because that eases uh, on my back. And Tony is laughing so hard that he's actually losing his headphones. So Simon cannot wear high heels because he becomes too tall for his standing table. That <laughs> is different. And gentlemen, we are out of time. So on that high-heeled bomb, it is time to end the show. Thank yeah. you so much for listening. And if you have any requests for Simon for shoes to wear, do not hesitate to call in and tell us. Until next time, have a great time. Bye. Bye. Bye, tall Simon. <laughs>